came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of As- Elsar, Chadalomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedalamar, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedalamar and the kings that were with him came and defeated Raphim in Ashtaroth Karianim and, Z- and the Zuzim in Ham and the Emim in Shaved Kariathim and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the way or all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim against Shadalamar, king of Elam. And Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their food supply, and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with him, with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been captive, been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his his relative Lot with his possessions, and also the women and the people. Verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedalamar, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God of God, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Give him, he gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear that you would say I have made Abram rich. I will accept or take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre, let them take their share. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, we have read the entire 14th chapter and we will kind of do an overview of this 14th chapter. 
Uh, next week, we will consider the 14th chapter again, especially the mysterious figure or person of Melchizedek. We'll talk about him next week. But as we do walk through this 14th chapter, I do pray that that as you are uh, walking through this with me and as I am walking through it with you, that your eyes would be and your minds would be uh, fixed on seeing what God is actually trying to communicate here in this 14th chapter and also how you, as you study through God's word, can approach each chapter uh, in, in trying to understand it better and not just reading through a chapter for, uh, and we'll talk about this in a moment, when you read through a chapter as we have just done, we could be tempted to say, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what was what we just read. I just read uh, a bunch of names that I could barely understand or pronounce. Take your time, and I pray that as we go through this chapter that you will better understand what is going on here. Abram has separated from his nephew Lot. He has deferred to his nephew, if you remember that. He has seen his nephew not first as his nephew, but as his brother. And in doing so, or seeing him as such, has allowed his nephew, his brother, to choose of the land. Any portion he would like. The land that God has promised to give to Abram, Abram is saying to Lot, choose any portion and it is yours. So Lot, as we learned, Lot lifted up his eyes, just as Adam and Eve lifted up their eyes before him. And his eyes were lured away from communion with God, away from fellowship with Abram, lured to the well-watered land positioned near Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram or Lot chose that land. Sodom and Gomorrah will become infamous for their rampant sin, rampant sin and wickedness. And now Lot, ignoring the presence of sin, uh, underestimating sin's powerful influence, has chosen to become next door neighbors with Sodom and Gomorrah. We shall see that he will soon regret this unwise choice. Now, meanwhile, Abram has once again experienced yet another painful separation. He's separating from his brother or son, if you will, because he has taken Lot in when Lot's father died, taking him in as his own son, if you will. But notice it's not long after this separation that the Lord comes to Abram. The Lord comes to Abram, speaks to Abram once again. God has not spoken to Abram since Abram left Ur. And now God has come to Abram again, speaking to Abram during a very difficult time in Abram's life. And when he comes to Abram, he clarifies the promise or further clarifies the covenant that he is making with Abram. Verse 14 of the previous chapter, chapter 13, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and through its breadth. For I will give it to you. And notice again the timing of the Lord's call. The timing of the Lord speaking to Abram. He mercifully comes to Abram. In an understandable time of weakness, Abram has just separated from his son in the faith, if you will. 
And it's not so much uh, because Lot has chosen the best land for himself. Uh, I don't believe that Abram could have been distraught because of that. But again, because Abram has separated from Lot, his brother's son, the one who he took in, who he has taken in to be his own son. And in this moment of difficulty, the Lord comes to Abram and offers him strength. Strength through his word, strength through promise. God is saying, Abram, lift up your eyes. Don't be downtrodden. Don't be distressed. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. You, you are not alone. Let us rejoice that God has promised also to never leave us alone. That he will, he has promised never to abandon us, to never leave us nor forsake us, but that God promises to be Closer than a brother to us. God instructs Abram to survey the land. It's all been given to him. It shall be for Abram and his offspring. And his offspring shall become as uncountable as the dust of the earth. And with this promise, Abram is encouraged once again by God's word. The Bible says in verse 18 of the previous chapter, Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Abram has moved his tent. And there he dwells in this new place by the oaks of memory. He sets up a, a, a an altar to the Lord and worships the Lord. He worships the Lord in, in response to the promise of God. He worships the Lord, sets up a, a an altar publicly as if to say, I worship Yahweh, the one true and living God. And now we come to this 14th chapter, and it is almost as if we are taking a, a sharp left turn because we are entering, as we get into this 14th chapter, a type of international warfare that's taking place. When we read this 14th chapter, it's almost like something straight out of uh, Braveheart. This chapter is a little different from the, the chapters before it and also different from the chapters that will come after it. In the beginning of this chapter, we read of a war that's taking place between kings and nations. It is possible when reading through this 14th chapter, and you may have as we read through it, it's possible to become distracted and even almost disillusioned by reading the king's names and the nations in which they rule and almost lose sight of the real point of this chapter. So what's the point of the chapter? The point of the chapter, if you're taking notes, is to show... That God is fulfilling his promise to Abram. The point of this chapter is to show what? That God is fulfilling his promise to Abram. Now, what is the promise? Let's go back a page or two in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Go back to Genesis chapter 12 and let's look at that promise. Verse 2. God promises Abram, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the promise of God. This chapter now, of chapter 14, and all of the life of Abram for that matter, were displaying by further steps that God was keeping his promise to Abram. This promise of chapter 12 could serve as a guide for all that was to come in the rest of the book of Genesis especially all that is to come in the rest of Abram's life. We are seeing uh, all that God has promised in chapter 12 unfolding 
throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. So as you're reading Genesis and, and you're reading different stories, don't disconnect all of those narratives from what God has promised uh, Abram in chapter 12. But ultimately, stay with me now, it's not just about the promise that God has given to Abram in chapter 12. Are you with me? Ultimately, all that has been promised to Abram, all that we see in the life of Abram, all that we see uh, in the rest of the Old Testament and in the rest of the prophets that, we are, that are spoken are ultimately not pointing to Abram's promise, but pointing to, to God's promise that God made in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. So we say Genesis chapter 12 is the unfolding or unveiling of all that God has promised to Abram. But in, in, in reality, all that is promised to Abram is a result of all that God has promised in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Amen. That a woman would come from one who would crush the head of the serpent. That one who in his doing and dying and rising would restore the image that man lost at the fall. This is ultimately what God is forwarding all of history towards. And Abram and his promises that, are, that God gives to him, Abram and the covenant that God makes with him, they are all unfolding and unveiling and revealing that which God has promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We are never to lose sight of the covenant of redemption. Amen. God was ultimately moving all of history toward the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. So then, when we come to this 14th chapter, we, we, we enter a scene that, again, straight out of Braveheart. And, and even the politics there are something very Godfather-like. Mafia, mafioso, if you will. We'll talk about this in a moment. When we read this 14th chapter, we must not see the 14th chapter as folklore, something that never happened. Even though we don't know much about these characters, we can trace down some of their lineages and what the nations that they were ruling became. So what we have here in the 14th chapter, it's not really not merely a border war. What it really is, is an expedition for conquest and domination. The nation of Elam ruled by a tyrant, and you see his name mentioned much here, Chedo Leamar. Chedorlaomer. He was a tyrant ruler. He had his oppressive thumb on nations and their kings. Chedorlaomer established himself as a supreme ruler. So keep that that name in your mind. He's the ruler. And he is ruling these five other nations that that he's requiring that they pay taxes to him. He's requiring that they pay tribute to him. They are somewhat obligated to pay taxes, tribute to this Chedorlaomer, because if they don't, then he will come and he will destroy them. So he's uh, oppressing them with power. If you don't pay me, then I will kill you. Very mafioso-like, right? The king, or this kind of oppression, went on for 12 years. 12 years until in the 13th year, the nations, these five nations, say, we are sick of this oppression. These nations are the, the nation of Sodom and their king, the nation of Gomorrah and their king, the nation of Adma and their king, the nation of Zeboim and their king, and the nation of Bela and their king. They became weary of this Elamite, which is the nation of Elam, Chedalamar's uh, nation. 
they became weary of his yoke. And so they decided that they would band together and rebel against Chedorlaomer. They will no longer pay taxes to him. They will no longer pay tribute to them. They would rather go to war and die than be under his oppressive hand. Now, Chedorlaomer has a choice. He either will allow these nations to rebel or he'll go and annihilate them. If he allows them to rebel, then all the other surrounding nations will figure that Chedorlaomer is not to be feared. That there's no reason to even pay him taxes. He will then lose money. He will lose influence. He will lose power. He obviously can't allow that to happen. So Chedorlaomer doesn't just go and decide to destroy these other nations. He joins with four other nations that are his allies. They are Shinar, Elsar, Goim. And they begin to make their way toward uh, conquering once again or squashing a rebellion of these other five nations. Are you with me? Now, as these four nations, these let's let's call them the four superpowers, as they make their way to go and regain power over these nations that are rebelling, the five nations, they destroy six other nations on their way. So as they're going to go and regain power from the five nations that are trying to rebel, they also take out six other nations just for fun's sake. They are sweeping through the land, making their power and dominance known until finally they come to the five rebelling nations. These five rebelling nations and the four superpowers, they line up for battle in the Valley of Siddim. As the battle begins... There are two nations that decide, I don't really want to fight. And they go running for the hills. And as they go running from the hills, they get caught in what's known as tar pits. They get caught in these tar pits. And there are other nations that yet escape. The two nations that decided to run away and they get caught in tar pits are Sodom and Gomorrah. They run from the battle. While the other nations stick around and yet they are still conquered by the four powerful ruling nations. So those five that tried to rebel, their rebellion was squashed. And they escaped to their hill countries and escaped with their lives. Now, the four remaining nations, they go to the rebelling nations and they ransack all of their goods. They plunder their goods, which is what you do in war. When you defeat an enemy, you go and take their goods. So these four powerful nations go to the weak nations that they have conquered once more. And they go and take their food their supplies. Now listen to this. And they even captured prisoners of war. As they are ransacking Sodom, they just happened to capture a certain man who was living, the Bible says, not near Sodom, but now in Sodom. His name is Lot. Abram's nephew. Lot was living in Sodom. Previously, he was living near Sodom. And now we're told he's actually in Sodom. And while he's in Sodom, he gets taken as a prisoner of war. Now, there is one who escaped the capture. And as he's escaping the capture, he notices that Lot is captured as a prisoner of war. And he just so happens to know that Lot is somehow connected to Abram. So he goes and tells Abram. Abram was living near the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Ashkol or Ishkol and Aner. Uh, Amorite, Ishkol and Aner had all become allies with Abram. So Abram now is, is establishing himself as, as a power, as one to be reckoned with. 
and he has made friends who also recognize Abram's authority and his power, and they are now allies. They've made agreements to protect one another. When Abram heard that his relative Lot had been taken, the Bible gives no inclination or no idea or no, no indication that there was any hesitation on Abram's part, but that he immediately, without hesitation, readied his men, those who were in his house, at least 318 of them, and they were trained for war. And he basically said, mount up. We're going to go get my, my son. When Abram, uh, now listen to this. Who is Abram seeking to rescue Lot from? Now put this in perspective. As you're reading this, you could almost read past and through this. Abram is, uh, is heading out, marching out to rescue Lot from Chedorlaomer. And the four other powerful world powers, if you will, world nations or world powerful nations. He, he is going to go rescue his nephew Lot from these four nations that have just squashed 11 other nations in total. Put that in perspective. Abram's going after the big guys. And he hasn't even, it seems like, hesitated to say we are going to rescue this one man. And what was the result? Verse 15, he divided his forces, of chapter 14, he divided his forces against them when? By night, he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Yours may say Dan. All, and brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. It was a sneak attack. One that the ruling powers were not ready for. Abram and his soldiers attacked by night. They believed that they were uh, but defeating all the nations, uh, these powerful nations. They, defeat, they believed that they defeated all of the nations, but they overlooked one nation, the Hebrews. Upon his return from battle, Abram is, is welcomed as a, as a conqueror, really, and he's welcomed by two kings. One of them was the king of Sodom. The other was the king of Salem. Abram rejects the tribute and blessing from Sodom. At some point, he made a, a vow that he would take nothing from the king of Sodom or, or Sodom itself. He recognized the wickedness of Sodom and its people and their leader and refuses to take even a, a strap or a shoestring from the king. But his response to the king of Salem was quite different. In the king of Salem, Abram recognizes God's blessing and accepts Melchizedek's blessing and also pays him a tithe. Now, what are we to learn from chapter 14? Are we to learn uh, military strategies? Are we to learn that we are to take care of our families and to put our lives in harm's way if need be? I would say no to the former. That is, we are not to learn military strategies. And maybe secondly or thirdly, yes to the latter, which is we should look out for our families. Genesis 14, again, it's describing how God was keeping his promise to Abram. The promise that he gave in Genesis chapter 12. And how God is further bringing along that promise of Genesis 3.15 to bring forth a seed from the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. 
Also, there is something else that's happening here that I think we cannot overlook, which we're going to talk about this morning, and that is this. God is blessing Abram. God is blessing Abram. As a matter of fact, if you're looking for a title for today, the blessing of God upon Abram. That's a lengthy introduction that we have this morning, but I do have three points for you. And here's the first one. God blessed Abram. God blessed Abram. We, we often use this word blessed, don't we? How are you doing? I'm blessed. It was such a blessing. God bless you. What does it mean when we say blessed? What does it mean when we say blessed? Blessed in Hebrew is Barak, just like Barack Obama. Barak, which literally means to kneel. It has the idea of kneeling while a gift is being presented to you. It's often used to denote God enabling or prospering someone in some way. In the New Testament, the word is makarios, makarios. And as it has a slightly different meaning, it refers to the state of here's you're going to like this, the state of of being happy. Blessed means happy. It is of a believer who has who is happy because they have received God's favor or God's provision. The Old Testament is more of a focus on what God has given. The New Testament is more of a focus on our reaction to what God has given the blessings that we have received from God. God has blessed Abram. God has blessed Abram spiritually by calling him out of darkness and into his marvelous light. By giving him faith to believe in the promised seed of the woman. And God has blessed Abram materially. He's given Abram land. He's made Abram very rich. He will give Abram children. But from this chapter, let us briefly zero in on the ways that God has blessed Abram. Thus displaying that he was fulfilling his promise to Abram. So God has blessed Abram is our main point. Now here's a sub point. God blessed Abram with a great name. God blessed Abram with a great name. In chapter 14, we are given a glimpse into the international warfare. And it is almost again all of a sudden. Within the space of 16 verses, we are introduced to 15 nations. They are not small tribes, but nations that will grow large. It is believed that Elam, the, the nation ruled by Chedorlaomer, that will become Persia. And Shinar will become eventually Babylon. So in short, the nations that are mentioned here are and will become some of the most powerful nations in all of history. And nestled between all of these great growing nations is a nation that could be easily overlooked. What is that nation? Verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the what? The what? The Hebrew. This is the first time in all of the scriptures that the term Hebrew is used in the Bible. If we are following the term as it is used in the scriptures, that term Hebrew is used to describe the people of Israel. As what? As a distinct nation from the other surrounding nations. This is the first time that they have been designated a specific name. Up until now, we have just been Abram and Shem and Noah. And now 
They are developing into a particular people with a particular name. He and his companions, Abram and his companions, have become known as, listen to this, sojourners. They are the ones who have passed over rivers. They have traveled borders. They have passed over mountains and through valleys. Abram has become known as Hebrew. Listen to this. The man who passes over. What is Hebrew? The man or people who pass over. It is also denoted as the sojourners. The sojourners, or if you will, the pilgrims. This is the literal meaning of the word. He and his companions are the pilgrims, the ones who pass over, and they are becoming now known by other nations. And they themselves are growing as a nation. Though Abram has no children, God has blessed him with heavy wealth. He's no longer unknown. And when we come to the end of the chapter, Abram is being recognized and honored by two other kings because of the victory the Lord has given him. Just a few chapters back, he was called out of a pagan nation. And now the Lord is making him into a great nation, just as he promised he would. In Genesis chapter 12, God is being faithful to his promises. So God blesses Abram with a great name. Here's another subpoint: God blesses Abram with a great victory. A great victory. The 14th chapter is clear. Four powerful nations oppressing 11 other nations. They are running through anyone and anything that stands in their way. It would appear that there is no hope for anyone. And that soon all of the earth, every nation, tribe, and tongue would be under the conquering power of these nations ruled by Chedorlaomer. That is until they captured one who belongs to Abram's household. They were on a rampage until they took one of Abram's own. And because Abram was in, because Lot was in Abram's household, Lot was in God's household. Because Lot was in Abram's household, Lot was in God's household. Abram hears that Lot has been captured and he does not say, well, that's too bad for him. He made the wrong choice. He should have stayed with me rather than leaving. Rather than that, Abram says, mount up. Let's go to war. Abram is joined by 318 trained men. And we assume that also the three allies, his three friends, also joined Abram as they go to rescue Lot. And it seems like an impossible task. But a task that Abram did not hesitate to take. He heard that there was a relative, his own in need. And Abram, listen close to what I'm saying. And Abram does not hesitate, but Abram takes action to go and rescue his nephew Lot. With his small militia, how will he defeat these world superpowers? What will he do against the nation that will eventually become Persia? What will he do, he and his his allies, do against the nation that will eventually become Babylon? How is it possible? And this is why some uh, skeptics don't believe God's word. How is Abram, with this small little band, band of warriors, going to defeat these great nations? I will tell you how. It is possible, and it happened because there is one ally that has been with Abram ever since he left Ur of the Chaldeans. He is the Lord God Almighty himself. 
He has promised to bless Abram. He has promised to curse those who curse Abram. And the Lord God Almighty is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is with Abram. Melchizedek pronounced that, that God has delivered all of Abram's enemies into his hands. He does not have limited resources. God himself fights for Abram. Abram's not the, not the hero in this battle. We, we don't look to Abram and say, man, Abram, you are a great man. It would be impossible for him to win this battle if it, if it were not given to him by the Lord. Abram has gone. He has gone to fight this battle. But the battle has already been won for him by God. Abram went to fight, but it was God's battle to fight and God has won it. The victory was given to Abram. And, and with this victory that God won, God allows Abram to get notoriety and Abram points, its, points that notoriety back to God. The other nations are seeing. This man, Abram, is the leader of the Hebrews. He's a nation that is being developed and to be reckoned with. But Abram is pointing all of that notoriety back to God. And our third subpoint: God blesses Abram with wisdom and discernment. When God gave Abram the victory over these ruling, powerful nations, he's greeted by two kings. And these two kings are meant to be contrasted. We'll do an entire sermon next week on this. But Abram comes after the victory and he blesses God most high. And Melchizedek comes out to greet Abram. And and notice what he brings when he comes out to meet Abram. The bread... And the wine. And he serves as priest of God most high. Abram responds to Melchizedek by worshiping God and also by giving Melchizedek a tenth of all that he has acquired. He pays a tithe to him. And then the king of Sodom comes out. And there is no blessing from Sodom, from the king of Sodom. He does not honor God in the way that Melchizedek has honored God. Instead, he comes out and says, Hey, you can keep all the things you got. Just give me the people back. And if you can imagine going from, I, I'm going to just make a side note, going from taking communion with the priest of God to immediately being welcomed or being given an offer by a pagan king. Hey, all the things you've just received, keep them. Just let me have my people back. Abram's response was, I will have nothing to do with you. He said in verse 22, I have sworn to the Lord most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's he's amening what Melchizedek has declared, that I will not take a thread. Now, Now think about this. He's speaking to a king. I won't take a thread from you. I won't take a, a, a sandal string from you. Anything that's yours, I won't take anything for fear that you might say that you have had something to do with my blessing. That you've had something to do with me prospering. Brothers and sisters, keep that in mind. I'll say this in a moment. Keep that in mind when we do deals with those in the world just to make a buck. When we cheat and when we lie and when we, when we connive with unbelievers just to make a buck. At some point, Abram has made a note to God. That he will not allow the wicked Sodom to have any hand in his blessing. He will take nothing, not even a sandal string. What a wise choice this was. The Lord has given Abram wisdom 
In the previous chapter, Lot, Lot made an unwise choice. He's allowed his, his desire to be rich to lead him to wicked Sodom all the way into Sodom, which eventually causes him to be captured as a prisoner of war. Abram has chosen wisely. He's chosen not to allow himself to be caught up with the things or people of this world. And God has rewarded him for his faith in God and for his wisdom. He was walking in the wisdom and favor of God. He was making decisions that were aimed at glorifying God, displaying that he has truly been brought from death to life. And because of this, Abram was truly blessed. Now, remember, all that we see in Abram does not end with Abram. He's not the end all be all to this story. We do not walk around saying that we are children of Abram. Why? Because all that Abram is, all that Abram does, was pointing to the one who would ultimately fulfill it in the most perfect way. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So our second point is this. God the Father blesses Jesus Christ. God the Father blesses Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Why is that our next point? Because all the promises, blessings given to Abram, again, are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The covenant promises given to Abram in chapter 12 are further revealed as revelation progresses and are meant to accelerate, to push forward the promises of Genesis, the promise of Genesis 3.15 and give us more insight into the finishing work of the skull-crushing seed of the woman and the blessing that is his upon his finished work. Although the promises that were made to Abram ultimately find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is where all these promises were pointing to and moving towards. All the blessings that God pours out on Abram, they are poured out upon Christ in a final sense. All the blessings poured out on Abram are poured out on Christ in a final sense. And we can take the same points, the same sub points from our last point, which is this. God blessed the name of Jesus. God has given Abram a great name, but God has blessed the name of Jesus in such a way that we will see here in in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Let's go there. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Listen to how God has so blessed the name of Jesus. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Philippians 2 and verse 5. God has blessed Christ. God has, number one, sub-point one, bless the name of Christ, verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and make, and being made in human likeness of men, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen to this. For this reason, Also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and those who are in the earth and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. God has blessed the name of Jesus the Bible says in Acts 2.28, repent and be baptized, every one of you. When? In, in what name? In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 4.12, there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 13, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God the Father gives Christ Jesus the greatest name of all names. And yet, this is a work or a promise still in progress. Amen. It is a blessing that God, that is, that has not yet fully been carried out. But all creation is moving forward toward that promise. There will come a day when the name of Jesus Christ will no longer be blasphemed will no longer be misused, will no longer be rejected. There will come a day when every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow their name in honor to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no name at that time that is more honored, that is more glorified, that is more known than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, and we will bow from the fires of hell, or we will bow from the glory of heaven, but we will all bow our knees to the name of Christ. All who confess Christ will joyfully surround the throne and sing praises to that name. And there will be countless multitudes. Listen, as uncountable as the dust of the earth. That will gather on that day to exalt the name of Christ. And that day will be an eternal day. It will be a day without end. What side of eternity will you be on? We will all bow our knee. God has blessed Christ with a victorious victory. Go back or think again in, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 11, 5 through 11. Let me read it to you again. Philippians chapter 2, you're, you should be there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. <clears throat> but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, de- to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Son, eternal and equal with the Father and Spirit, humbled himself. Taking the form of a lowly creature, he submitted himself to the sufferings of man. He submitted himself to the, to the law of man, to the law of God, to the law of God, sorry, to live under that law of God, to be obedient to it. And he passively submitted himself to death, the death of a vile criminal, criminal. And, and what seemed to be defeat was effected as the greatest victory of all time. No victory could ever come near the victory accomplished by Christ at Calvary's cross. No NBA final, no NFL Super Bowl, no World Series, no boxing match, no MMA fight, no uh, fight in court could ever come near the victory won by Christ at Calvary. Amen. When we fell in our sin, listen to this, when we were captured, when we, allowed ourselves to be captured by sin when we allowed ourselves to be taken prisoners by sin when we ourselves set our houses on fire god the son did not hesitate to accept the covenant of redemption between the god between god the father the son and the spirit but he immediately took that responsibility that call to rescue us from the prison that we had put ourselves in. 
the son took on flesh, becoming like one of us, becoming like one of his created beings, that he might rescue us from the death of sin and from the prison again that we created ourselves. This is good news. This is the gospel that Jesus Christ died, that we might have life. The enemy Jesus conquered is far more powerful than those four powering nations that Abram conquered. The enemy that Christ conquered is more powerful than any any foe that we may face in this world. For Christ has defeated sin and death and the grave itself. There is no longer sting in death. For Christ has swallowed up that sting of death in his victory at the cross. What a great victory Christ has won. And God has blessed Christ, or God blessed Christ with wisdom. The Bible says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And we can observe that point from two different perspectives. From the perspective of man. Jesus, as a man, learned wisdom. God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, taught wisdom to the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He learned right and wrong and applied that discernment to life so that he never once sinned or rebelled against God. That when he taught, those who heard his teachings were amazed at his teachings and asked, where did he get this wisdom from? The answer was this, that Jesus was not only a man, but that he is God. He is one person in two natures. He is the second person of the Trinity, who, according to Colossians 2.3, contains all of the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That which we see displayed in Abram's wise choice was perfectly displayed in the wisdom of Christ. Why do we say that? Abram is, or Christ is the greater Abram. He's the greatest of all the men that we see in the Bible. He is the greater Abram. Why? Because Abram would soon make a choice that he would bring upon himself. Rather than trusting in the promises of God, he would choose one of the servant girls to try to bring forth the promise of God. Rather than waiting on God, that God would bring him a son, Abram would take uh, the promise of God into, into his own hands and make it happen on his own and thus mess up his own life for a long time. When presented with temptation to sin, the Lord Jesus Christ wisely turned from, to, from, from the temptation of sin to that which is written, the word of God, the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Brothers and sisters, we are not meant to look to Abram. We are meant to look to Christ. What we see in this 14th chapter is not pointing us to Abram. It's pointing us to Christ. Now, what about us? Because we always want to know what about us. Our third point is this. We are blessed in Christ. There's one final step. And that is that in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, we are blessed. Galatians 3, 9, all the nations will be blessed in you, that is Christ. So then those who are of faith, we who have trusted in Christ, are blessed with Abram, the believer. Think about this. When, when we read the blessings of Abram, we are blessed alongside of Abram. Verse 14, in order that, I'll talk about that in a minute. In order that Christ Jesus, the, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles. So that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The blessings that are upon Abram come to us as well. In Christ. We may look to Abram and we may be tempted to be envious of the blessings. Or let, let me just say this. Uh, for funsies, I like to watch um, 
the Word Network, TBN, just for like five minutes, just because I say, I can't believe it. And they, they still are saying, you can be blessed the way Abram was blessed. Ha! You can have land the way Abram had land. Ha! You... And I'm sitting there saying, you are completely missing the point that what Abram has been blessed or what Abram had in the blessings of God is ours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. We are not to look to Abram and be tempted or even strive to have what Abram has had. We have what Abram has. We have been blessed the way Abram was was blessed because Abram was blessed ultimately in Christ. This is why when he was looking at the land and he was uh, offering to Lot, choose any part of the land that you want, it was because Abram was not looking to land. He was looking to Christ, which was his true treasure. My dear brothers and sisters, we have been blessed in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. We have been given a great name too. In Christ. Not a name that is great according to worldly standards. Our names may never be known in the sports halls of fame or in concert halls or among the great academics. But our names in Christ are known in heaven. Are known in heaven. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who did what? Who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In heavenly places. In who? In Christ Jesus. Just as he chose us. In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Oh, you are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. In Christ, we have been chosen as a love gift from the Father to the Son. And this was all before the foundation of the world. Our names were known by God before we ever called upon his name. Before we ever stepped into a church building, we were known and for loved by God. We need not toil to strive and gain names for ourselves. To, to seek notoriety or acclaim for ourselves. To, to say, I need to go to the best school because that will get, bring me acclaim. I need to uh, strive for the best job because that will bring me acclaim. No, brothers and sisters. Our names are known in heaven because we are in Christ. And if you are known in Christ, it does not matter if you leave this earth not known by one person except your mommy and daddy. You are known by Christ. And when you stand before him, there will be a great celebration in heaven. And you will be told by the one who it matters most, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what matters. We bear the name of Christ. We bear the name that is above every name. In Christ, we have been given victory. I need you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see this. 1 Corinthians, in Christ, we too have been given a victory. In Christ, we have been given a victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. (coughs) Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be ra- will be raised imperishable and we will be changed from this perishable 
For this perishable must be put or must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. For when the, this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will be, we will come about the saying, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Pause. Be immovable. Just pause. Always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. To God be the glory. What a great encouragement. Turn to that verse to get proper perspectives on the apparent defeats that we face every single day. You lost a job. What a defeat that feels like. They don't want you no more. (laughs) Turn to that verse. A relationship is not working out or did not work out the way you hoped or intended or thought it might. You had big dreams. It just didn't work out. Turn to that verse. Your car breaks down and it seems like it's breaking down every single day. Turn to that verse. Death and sickness that, that, that affect and plague our temporal bodies and this temporal life. Turn to that verse. Why? Because every single one of those apparent deaths, they're not, or defeats, they're not final. And they're just now. Turn to that verse to get right perspective on where true victory lies. It is in Christ. Because we will all experience highs and lows and ebbs and flows in this world. But there is one thing that is unchangeable. And that is the victory that has been procured by us in Christ Jesus. Won for us. Accomplished and applied for us at the cross. So yes, things will take place in your life. But they should not ultimately move you. You should stand immovable. Yes, things will take place in your life, but you should ultimately not be destroyed. Because victory has been won for you. Turn your eyes to Christ. It's a small thing. It will pass. Christ will give and has given you victory in him. He's defeated sin, death, the grave. He has defeated In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Finally, we have wisdom in Christ. All the insight, all the mystery of his will has been made known to us. Where? Through his word. Through his word. We need not wander about this world wondering and asking, what am I supposed to do with my life? The chief end of man is to enjoy God or glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you pursue that. Then God will always prepare and take care of you every step of the way. But sisters, there is simply not enough time to talk about the blessing that we have in Christ. But they are many. Just as Abram received Blessings, we have received blessings, and they that are given to Abram are also given to us because they've been fulfilled in Christ. We are blessed in the sacraments. We are blessed in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, which we will do this evening. In baptism, which we got to witness last last month sometime. 
Each time we come to worship on the Lord's Day, we are reminded of the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. As the word of God is preached, as it was preached this morning, we are reminded of the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. When we sing, when we read, when we pray, we are all doing so as hymns of praise to the one who has won victory for us. This is an overview of this entire chapter. God is fulfilling his promise to Abram. And God has fulfilled the promises in Christ Jesus. And we are partakers of those rich blessings. Let us pray.